I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Infrastructures are all the buzz for the Fintech world. You hear the term in online advertisements, apps, and pitch decks as companies attempt to show that they are more than just one-dimensional services providers, but also tools with which they can scale their operations, or the operations of others, beyond the expectations of customers and even investors. But what exactly is infrastructure? And does the term mean that fintech systems are supposed to operate as a software program, a financial institution, or a platform? And does it even matter for investors? Now, this is the kind of question I've turned to my friend Amias Garrity to help solve the mysteries of the digital ecosystem. As a partner at QED, he's been at the forefront of fintech investments and digital transformation, and he's been a prior guest on the show. But we wanted to turn things around a little bit, and I've asked him to find whom he thought was the best and brightest to help us tackle the question of digital infrastructure. And he's done just that and cooked up an interview with Trisha Kemp, the managing partner of Oak HCFT, who has built a career as one of the most successful venture capitalists in the world. She's agreed to hop on the podcast with Amias, where he'll ask her about infrastructure, payments, and where the action really is in the fintech ecosystem. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, it's a, always a pleasure to be here and a really kind introduction. And it's great to be back on the show. And this time as a co-host, this is a, a real treat for me and something I've aspired to. So I wanted to uh, welcome Trisha onto the show. Trisha, thanks so much for making it on behalf of Chris. Uh, and here we are. Welcome to FinTech Beat. Absolutely. And Amias, you know, delighted to join you here. There is a ton of excitement about infrastructure, as Chris noted. But people really don't talk that much about what it means. What are the boundaries here? Well, it's, uh, it's a good question. It's evolved over time. So we first started by thinking of financial services stacks, like banking, payments, lending, asset management, mortgage, uh, et cetera. And we sat there and said, okay, up and down those tech stacks, if you are a legacy player, right, what part of each of those stacks needs to be automated or brought to the next generation, you know, over the course of whatever period. And so you first can think of it as, all right, serving the legacy players, how do you help them identify, market, onboard, price, manage, process claims, you know, retain customers? And there are sort of new infrastructure tools up and down those tech stacks that are useful and that are kind of next generation. And we all know there are lots of examples, you know, uh, insurance is something that's priced once a year and tends to be paper-based, at least in the old world, the new world 2.0, 3.0, it's now going to be, you know, done in real time with data, asset management, you could say the same. Um, So we think of it, you know, first of all, as, okay, legacy players, you know, uh, what helps them run and what would help them run more efficiently? 
And as all those stacks get digitized, you have additional solutions that are kind of matrixed across all those stacks. You know, fraud, identity, risk, authentication, you know, BPO. Um, and all those kind of are sit on top of some of the new infrastructure layers across those stacks, um, uh, which offer, you know, opportunities for innovation and opportunities for the bank or the insurance company or the asset manager to, to offer a better end solution to their end customer. You know, and then what's sort of happened over the course of the last few years, which I guess in retrospect is kind of obvious, is all these capabilities are not only needed for financial services institutions and legacy players. They're also obviously needed for fintechs that might be starting a new challenger bank or whatever they're, you know, a lending institution. But they're also part and parcel of the infrastructure of many other industries. So it's not just needed for financial services ecosystems. It's needed in e-commerce, right? It's needed in other retail. It's needed in government. It's needed in healthcare. So infrastructure and kind of digitizing all those processes right, is becoming part and parcel of lots of different industries. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. The, the thing that I think, you know, when, when you talk about what you are doing, I love the idea of you started out with an, a vision of a legacy financial institution that was going through and slowly kind of dismantling and, and maybe we call it remantling in a more modern way. And yet now what we have is, truly modern uh, financial institutions and software companies that are realizing that they can interact with software uh, and they can interact with financial services as software. And are you seeing that there are really different kind of companies operating in each of those uh, modes or are companies evolving from the first to the second? Um, I think there are different companies targeting different parts of this. So there are lots of companies, you know, targeting digitizing, you know, either the whole tech stack of one of those, you know, verticals or part of the tech stack of one of those verticals, right? And then there are companies out there, and I guess we kind of call it embedded financial services, and you can call it embedded or you can call it, you know, a tool, a widget, where they realize, oh, I've got a software platform that is doing something completely different, but I want to embed payments, right? And I want to embed you know, identity authentication. Um, you know, a good example of this is, um, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we have uh, a couple companies in and around the identity space verifying who an individual is. And lo and behold, kind of telehealth, and the fact we're all now talking to doctors via our phones or iPads, whatever it might be, you know, they need to identify who's this, who, who the call's coming in from. So if they're not going to see you in person, they kind of want to go through a full identification Point one, and then when you call in the second or the third time from the same phone number with a similar you know, identity metrics around it, they've kind of identified you, yes, high likelihood you know, that the doctor's talking to the same person, right? And, and there are obviously all these compliance issues around that. So the, the whole second group that you mentioned, right, are kind of picking up these capabilities and they're embedding them. Right and whatever other you know vision or strategy they have, which which is you know which is fascinating. It's my point about these capabilities are kind of needed across many industries. Yeah, and I love um, you've really illustrated how some of these companies have come in to define themselves as infrastructure, whereas two or three years ago we might have thought, oh well, identity management is a different category. That's not financial services infrastructure. And also, I remember an identity management company explaining that one of their first clients was actually a ride-sharing company. 
So we see lots of these financial services-specific skills getting picked up across a huge range of, of the economy. You know, Trish, I'd like to take us back to, I think, the first ever conversation that you and I had in which um, it was before all this talk about infrastructure was so buzzy. And we were talking about how you like to invest in the boring parts. Now that infrastructure is so uh, buzzy, are you finding new places to invest or are you still happy that everybody's come to the party that, that, you, that you've been at for a little while? <laughs> well, that's kind of funny, Amias. Uh, uh, and, and we're going to date ourselves here, but we like being kind of ahead of the crowd a little bit. I mean, back, you know, 15 years ago when, you know, fintech was payments and we were doing payments and you had to explain to somebody what you were interested in, you know, they thought it was the most boring thing possible that all of a sudden, you know, it became, became so exciting. Uh, uh, we think there's huge opportunity still in, you know, infrastructure and, and all these tools and solutions. So, so yes, great that lots of other people see it that way. Um, but, uh, and that's great for innovation, right? And that's great for all the parts of this, moving all the parts of this industry forward. Um, uh, we think we're still in the early innings. I mean, whether it's kind of, you know, infrastructure plays or payments plays, you know, there's, a good 10 to 20 year run, we, we still believe as all this becomes more automated. And, you know, as you're well aware, kind of in some of these, again, you know, financial service stacks, um, you know, many of these solutions kind of hang off of legacy, you know, tech solutions. Many of them are trying to replace it, but you know, you're a long way in getting those full stacks all replaced, as well as you're a long way in getting sort of embedded financial services included in uh, you know, lots of other um, uh, industries. And so, you know, and, you know, payments as being a big part of this is kind of interesting. You know, we have an investment in a company called Rapid. And, you know, they, they largely, you know, they have, they have different parts of the business, but they, they help manage sort of non-traditional payments in the 75% of the world that's not using traditional payments. And so, as we might sit here and say, oh, well, lots happened in payments. Well, 75% of the world is still not kind of doing what we're doing to pay for things. And so there, you know, there's, there, there's, there are huge opportunities across both of these. And they're also, um, uh, you know, this, you can feel good about what you do getting up in the morning, right? They're also exciting, right? They're exciting and they're innovative and they're offering better financial solutions to end consumers or end businesses are offering better, uh, you know, uh, identity or authentication, um, you know, just simple things like, uh, you know, fraud technologies. And we have a couple strong investments in, in the fraud space. And, and we all know that 10 years ago, if you traveled and you were using your Visa MasterCard and you landed in another country, it would all be stopped and you had to make the phone call and you had to know them ahead of time. Well, now you don't have to do any of that, right? It's all been kind of brought forward and it's easier and there's less friction. So the ability to kind of reduce friction you know, across all these categories is going to continue to evolve. Yeah, I think that the point about... Um payments and, and especially just how much of payments, even in the United States, uh, remains you know, by check or by wire or by um, these uh, older paper-based uh, methodologies. And then you go to the rest of the world um, and still many opportunities, you know, many economies operate on cash. So I, you know, I'd love to zoom in on this idea of as payments as the, the really core interface between what we think of as fintech and then what you might call real life. Um, is that why payments has been so successful or so much the leading edge of fintech as we've seen it evolve? Or, or what, what do you think accounts for uh, the just um, repeated success of very large uh, fintech companies coming out of the payments ecosystem? 
you know, I think, and, and you could say we saw this all coming and it just even happened to a greater and a greater degree. Um, uh, you know, the, the wind is at the back of digitized payments, right? Uh, you know, consumer payments, and I won't, you know, the exact numbers, you can read different numbers, but 15 years ago, you know, 35% of U.S. consumer payments were uh, digital, right? And that means card or, or, you know, online. And the rest was cash and check. And of course, that's now almost completely flipped, right? And so, you know, payments, digital payments, right, has continued to move up and to the right. And payments, one of the reasons for the success of payments is it's recurring, right? It's, it's, it's not a one-time thing. It's every time I use my credit card or whatever form of payment I'm going to use. And so the ability to kind of digitize it, make it recurring, uh, movement towards subscription models in many instances, all have sort of been the wind at the back of payments. And, um, you know, obviously the move towards e-commerce and, and again, you know, many more payments over the course of the last six months as e-commerce kind of accelerated faster than originally expected. You know, all the digitized payments have moved faster than originally expected. So I, I think part of the benefit and the opportunity in payments has been, uh, and you, we can all say this is awfully obvious, you know, after the fact, but, you know, it was going to always kind of move up and to the right, you know, checks and cash were going to be replaced and it was going to be moved digitized. And if you looked internationally, like lots of countries don't use checks. I mean, the U.S. is really the only place that use checks. And they, matter of fact, they've jumped over uh, credit cards or debit cards and they moved right to, you know, e-wallets hanging off phone numbers and, and other things. And um, so uh, the, the fact that that was all going to be digitized um, and is continuing to be digitized and B2B payments are way behind, international payments are way behind, you could so, sort of say, well, the wind is at the back. So yes, uh, most payment solutions are going to continue to accelerate. Yeah, I think that idea that, you know, in retrospect, this should have been obvious and yet, yeah. <laughs> and yet it, it, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't to, to lots of investors who said, you know, payments is boring, payments is back office. And yet here we are. And so many of the most successful new financial services companies really do hang off payments. The other thing I want to draw out, Tricia, which, which you said, and sometimes it can be hard to understand for people who aren't in the game of being a professional investor, just how powerful recurring revenue is when it comes to financial returns. And so could you unpack that a little bit for the audience? Just why is it that these recurring revenue models, whether it's payments or software as a service, are so, so powerful um, and so attractive to venture investors. Well, it's also attractive to the management teams. It, it, it kind of means that, okay, you're going into 2021 and you can say, here's our base revenue. You know, it's not one-time revenue that then has to be replaced to have growth the following year. You tend to have kind of, you know, a, a a recurring revenue number that you're going into the year with, and maybe you have some churn on it, but then you're going to add on top of it. And so for you know, management team, employees, as well as the investors, it, it puts you in a position, right, where your ability to grow is a lot easier than, you know, you're selling red socks and however many socks you sold this year, you know, you have to replace that number plus a larger number next year. You already have folks on contracts with any software, you know, any recurring software license or subscription. You know, they're already, you already have customers on contract. Yes, you might have some churn, but then you have to add to it. So for something like payments, you know, merchants might be on a payment contract. And so, you know, yes, in this last six to eight months, there might've been issues because, you know, the restaurants had less volume or whatever it might be, you know, a retail site had less volume, but 
in general, you can kind of say, okay, it's going to continue to add on and, and move up. So high recurring revenue, uh, I'd call payments um, generally high gross margin, because even though the actual you know, payment itself might start having a, a, you know, a pressure on the margin, you have all these services and solutions around it, you're able to embed it, um, is, you know, it's a really, it's, it's, it's a great business model for you know, entrepreneurs and investors, uh, both. And so it does seem like in the fintech ecosystem, we have a lot of um, fintechs coming to investors, coming to the world and saying, hey, you should not think of us as a financial services company. You should think of us as a software company. Um, With the success of some of the API-based companies, the success of startups selling to other startups, there's a lot of um, effort to for every startup to call themselves, oh, we're API first or we're developer tools. calling themselves infrastructure. How much of this is hype and how much of this is really possible and a new emerging business model that's going to keep generating great businesses? Uh, Well, this is part of the reason we've always liked B2B fintech to begin with. Um, And again, we can like pat ourselves on the back and maybe say we're ahead of the curve. But um, you know, if you're a fintech kind of spending marketing dollars, going after the end consumer and business directly, you know, a, a lot of what you're doing is kind of a marketing exercise. Yes, you have a solution behind it, and, and I don't mean to underestimate the solutions behind it. If you're more of an infrastructure play, then your ability to be picked up via API, via a distribution partnership, your ability to create sales um, uh, becomes much greater. And you're basically able to leverage off the fact that whoever is picking up your capability, and let's say you have hundreds of them, some of them might not make it, but some of them might make it, and then you have standout winners. Um, uh, and it's, it's in a much easier way to sell, is what I would say. Uh, or, you know, and again, there are pluses and minuses of, of many of these elements. I mean, it's, it's harder to do a large enterprise B2B sale. That can take you a long time, right, versus a direct-to-consumer or direct-to-business. But being a, having the capability and the technology available via an API, via a widget, means that end customers can pick it up and can make use of it, and you can gain from their possible traction without having to actually sell it yourself. And so it's a very efficient, high-margin way to kind of create solutions that might get picked up by others. And then obviously, you know, obviously Stripe is one of the first to have done this very well. What I hear from you, especially, Trish, is this idea that at the margin, fintech and software are, you think of them with the same kinds of investor lenses. So maybe that raises the question, is there a boundary to fintech? Where does fintech stop? I mean, <laughs> how far will, will, we, will you go, will, will, should we go who are interested in fintech to be thinking about where, where does fintech stop? So, you know, we laugh about this because, you know, opportunities come in and we're like, well, can we call that fintech or not? <laughs> and, and um, you know, fintech's eating the world. There should be, you know, a Time Magazine cover saying that. Um, uh, it's very broad, is the, is the honest answer. I mean, you can basically call lots of fintech things fintech if you care to, right? Um, we try to focus on areas where we have real kind of knowledge and expertise and experience so we can be very useful to the management team. Um, but yes, as it spreads out to be the infrastructure of other industries. I mean, we, we also have a, a large healthcare portfolio, and I'd say a third of the companies in our health, healthcare portfolio, you could call them fintech if you care to, right? Because they're putting money on an HSA card or they're sending payments or they're identifying. Um, uh, 
And we then have other companies that, uh, you know, we've won Cryon in the RPA space, robotic process automation. And yes, the majority of their customers are financial services companies where they're automating some of the back-end processes, but other ones aren't, right? Other of them uh, might be hotels. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it is a growing category. You know, we try to stick to, you know, you know, a technology asset that has an advantage or a data asset that has an advantage. Um, uh, but uh, it does grow as it becomes part of the infrastructure of every industry. Government, you know, government, you know, gov- running government websites and managing the payments and paying people paying their tickets or their licenses, whatever it might be, you know, is has got a huge, you know, fintech support structure to it. Yeah, it, it's certainly true. I mean, we we've seen companies that uh, you know, we're focused on m- metropolitan transit authorities and right. how do you digitize payments? How do you modernize payments? How do you make, you know, one thing, I was in London and in London now you don't have to buy a Metro card or a, whatever you would call it right. in London. You just tap your credit card on the turnstile and it opens it. It is done. It's made that pot process seamless. So it is pretty interesting how deeply embedded these FinTech veins are um, into industries that we think of as, as not financial services. This has been a fantastic conversation, but let's, let's turn as we close into something a little bit more speculative. Um, as an investor, what are you looking for in the next uh, four years of a Biden administration? What will fintech be like under the new administration? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, so we don't know, first of all. Um, so for instance, the CFPB will probably kind of be re-empowered. Um, and that probably means, you know, solutions that protect the end consumer or the end business, you know, solutions that help identify any predatory, you know, lending or, or identification, um, solutions that offer you know, financial relief or uh, other financial capabilities, you know, ability to increase your credit score, whatever it might be, are probably going to have, you know, more tailwinds to them. They're probably going to be, uh, you know, an opportunity for more focus. Um, you know, an area in particular that we've sort of been looking at is ESG. So we think there's probably going to be a lot more um, interest in solutions, whether it's for, you know, in the asset management world or in, in you know, employee benefits, uh, you know, for, for whether it's the asset manager, a record keeper, a, a retail advisor, an employer to kind of offer capabilities to the end uh, individual, you know, that allows them to, to act or to invest um, you know, according to their ESG kind of, uh, you know, desires. Um, and so we think that's an area that's quite interesting. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. One of the things that, that we have seen is that, you know, on, on, on really on a bipartisan basis, there's a lot of focus and discussion of innovation, but the particular flavors of what gets emphasized are likely to be different. And so we've got a lot to look forward to. And Trisha, I just want to thank you for coming by and sharing your insights. You've given such a great perspective on how to evaluate all that we're going to see changing in the world, whether that's because of politics and policy or just because of digitization. And uh, I think you've illustrated a, a world in which some things just go up and to the right, whether you want them to or not. And that's, uh, that's where you as an investor like to spend time, where, where are the real forces driving our economy to change. So thank you again for coming by. Absolutely. Thank you, Amias, and happy holidays to everyone. 
Amias' conversation with Trisha highlights once again that definitions matter. But so do good ideas and strategy. And when it comes to the digital transformation of the economy, the way in which those ideas come to market can make or break a venture, even in the lucrative world of payments. But as we can see, no idea is foolproof, and the efficacy of infrastructures, whether brick or mortar or online, can depend on more than just having the right sponsor and founder. Timing can also be important, as can evolving tastes and preferences of customers and investors alike. Knowing this is more than just critical for venture capitalists. It's also important for end users, especially those bombarded with the hype of emerging technology and the very real opportunities and risks that they face as they adapt and change their financial habits and expectations. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.